Okay, we are going back to the book of Genesis this week for our sermon series. So today I will read with you Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 20, the chapter, the entire chapter, chapter 33 of Genesis. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last... Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice.
Well, sometimes Pastor Dave and I are really thoughtful when we plan out our Sunday morning services. And sometimes things just happen that we didn't quite plan. And this morning I'm thinking as we were reading the, um, the uh, Advent reading and the theme for this morning being peace, I couldn't think of a more perfect theme for this morning because this, this, this story and this passage today is, is one of reconciliation and peacemaking. And so sometimes the Lord shows us that we really have no idea what we're doing at all, and he does it. So I'm really thrilled that that's the theme this morning because it's going to fit nicely, I think, and as we head to the table as well. Well, if there's one phrase that captures Jacob's life in our own, it's the Latin phrase that the great Martin Luther made famous, simul justus et peccator. You're thinking, what does that mean? (laughs) Why does it matter? Well, it translates in English to this, at the same time, justified and sinner. What does this mean? Well, it's the heart of the gospel. It means that from one, on one perspective, from one hand, because of the work of Jesus and our faith in him, we're seen as righteous, justified is that word in the eyes of God. But in another sense and perspective, sin still remains in your life and even some of the desires of your own heart. And in and of ourselves and under the scrutiny of God, we still have sin, and we would say are sinners. But positionally, in our relationship with God by Christ, we're treated as saints, sons, daughters, citizens with all the rights and privileges and goodness of King Jesus because of King Jesus. And this very truth, simul justis et peccator, makes life still then very messy if it's true. A big mixture of moments of of, of righteous living and faithful obedience, but then a mixture of terrible blunders in our life and outright sin, or old patterns of sin that continue to return for you, maybe patterns of sin even learned from your family, as this family in the Bible's got a lot of that, don't they? Passing on these patterns of sin, relational patterns of hurt and, and sin that repeats over and over again. What's it for you as we start this morning? What's maybe that thing that keeps coming back to haunt you? And you, the, the, a sin that keeps coming back, frustrating you and, and pointing you to the reality of, yes, same time, justified and sinner. What is that for you? Well, the tension is the result of living in the already but not yet state of the world. Yes, already Through faith in Christ, we're already justified and holy in his sight when he looks at us, but but not yet literally, are you? I don't think any of us in the room would say, like, I am perfect, would you? But not yet literally totally holy yet. We still battle sinful desires. We've seen this with Jacob, haven't we? Over and over and over again, deceiving his brother Esau twice stealing the birthright and blessing from his father, deceiving his father. But then, on the other hand, in courageous faith, taking his family and heading back to the promised land of of, of Bethel where God had commanded him to go, where he had that vision of the angel army. And now today, facing the music by trying to 
to, to set things right, make things right with his brother who he had wronged and, and hopefully accepting or affecting peace, right? The theme, reconciliation. So why is conflict and reconciliation so hard when we've been given all the resources we need in the gospel? Because we are, at the same time, justified in sinner. That's why. But we do have the resources. We can change. Growth is possible. And we see in Jacob today, there is progress. There is growth in this man whose life we've been following. Would you like to have all your intimate details recorded for everyone after you? <laughs> That's what happened here with this, this man, Jacob. We get the good, the bad, and the ugly this morning, we're going to look at the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, which was only possible because of the first reconciliation Jacob had had with God first, before this one. The answer to our, our question, why we struggle with reconciliation, is only found today, we're going to see, in the grace that humbles us, restores us, and brings us all the way home. We're going to hit that theme all the way home. So get your outline out. Get ready. We're going to look at reconciliation and obedience today. That's kind of our two themes. That's where we're headed. Reconciliation and obedience. Uh, that's where we're going to go today. So let's start with reconciliation in our first section today, which is as those reconciled to God, we must seek reconciliation with others. That's what we got happening in this story here. If you're reconciled to God, there's a connection to our vertical or uh, horizontal relationships with others. Remember, a little context to, to, to jump back into the story. Remember, as of this morning, as the morning has dawned for Jacob, he's just had the realization that he had spent the night wrestling with God in the form of an angel. And he'd come face-to-face -face with God, and along with that face-to-face, -face, a reckoning with his sin. As remember, he had to speak his name. The angel asked him, who are you? Obviously, he knew he was God, but it was a, there was a purpose. Jacob had to wrestle with and recognize his own name, which had become synonymous with the term a heel grabber. Because remember, he came out of the womb grasping at his brother Esau's heel and had been doing it ever since in their life. His name had become known as a shrewd schemer who was only concerned with his own purposes, his own goals, and frustrated everyone else's goals. And that's what conflict is. This is what conflict is. When two or more people, when we have different purposes or goals that frustrate someone else's Purposes or goals. That's what conflict is. We'll get some specific examples in a minute. And think about Jacob. When he lifts his eyes here and sees his brother coming with those 400 hairy-chested welcoming crew, it was not. They were a warrior army coming for who knows what. But violence and the potential of death was there. He must be thinking back on the very different purposes and goals the two brothers had. Well, Jacob desired the blessing. Guess what? So did Esau. Jacob desired the birthright. 
Guess what? Esau wanted it back once he had stolen it. Esau desired to kill Jacob. Guess what? Jacob wanted to live. Conflict. And he wanted a family too. That's what conflict is in our life. That's what conflict is in your life. It is a, it's a, a reckoning over different purposes, goals, desires. You could use that word there for goals. I mean, it could be as simple as a couple in conflict over, over where to vacation, the coast, or let's go to Bend. It could be a difference over where to go out to eat, different goals and desires. Conflict over parenting, disciplining of children and goals and desires and how we do that. Here's a big one. Conflict over resources whether it's time or money and how to use those limited resources. Haven't you come into conflict before with somebody over how to spend something or what to use the limited time you have? Different purposes and goals that conflict. Sometimes it's just poor communication or or, or a misunderstanding in communication that causes conflict. I've had numerous occasions of conflict in church life where when a conversation finally happened, we realized that, oh, this was just a matter of miscommunicating or misunderstanding or, or, or not hearing what was actually said. But sometimes as well, how does conflict come? It comes from our own sinful attitudes and desires that fuel the conflict. As James wrote in chapter 4, what causes quarrels? Here it is. What causes fights among you? Conflict. Is it not this, that your passions are at war, desires, goals, purposes? Passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so at the far extreme, you murder. Far conflict, right? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So our own desires feel conflict too, don't they? Things we want. Sometimes it's just that we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We don't give a charitable read to their words or their, their actions. And sometimes one of the, I said one of the biggest is we assign moral motives to things when we don't know if there's any moral motive at all. When really as Christians we should give the most charitable read to a situation when we don't know the truth or don't know the reality. Well, as you think of Jacob and Esau's conflict, it was probably a mixture of all these things, wasn't it? So much history, so much water under the bridge, so many different situations of conflict from the very moment they left the womb to now in their adult life. And even now, though, as Jacob has, is approaching Esau, and he's tucked, did you catch that there? He's tucked Rachel and Joseph in the rear for protection. How did I think the rest of them felt? (laughs) Probably not so good. You know, uh, our two servants and your children, you're right out front, front of the line. You think, you know, who wants to go to the front of the line in the battle? No one. So he tucks them in the back, but even so, guess who's out front? Jacob. Take a look at verse three with me. He went out ahead He himself went on before them. So now he's out front, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near 
his brother. So even with that organization of the procession that would go to his brother, Jacob now gets out in front. He's out in front of the conflict. Why the change from the, from the rear of the group now out to the front? What had happened in this man's life that transformed him from a heel grabber to now out in the front of his family line to face the music? Jacob had come away with his encounter with God, a changed man. That's what had happened. His encounter with God, once he'd met God face to face and experienced his grace in the midst of all his sin, he was a changed man. That's what had changed. God now had Jacob in his grip. And we see because of that dramatic actions. We see him out front. Now, we'll also see today he's not entirely changed. He's still Jacob. He's trying to be Israel, but he's still Jacob. He's not entirely changed. But nevertheless, we see him growing in an area of weakness. He's now out front. And as he approaches Esau, he bows down, verse 3 said, seven times until he came near to his brother. And verse 4, look at it, says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. I think we're getting the point that Esau is acting here. And they wept. And they wept. Here's what we're looking at. We're looking at the fact in these men that only a God-centered life produces fruit in our relationships with stuff, things, and with others. That's what happened with Jacob. He had had this encounter with God, and he had a God-centered life, and it was producing change in his relationships with others. And don't you want that? Healthier relationships, more honest, open, truthful, healing in relationships. What we have here in Jacob is a picture of a life that's been reoriented around God, God-centered. Not only has Jacob sent along an entire ranch full of animals as a gift, I think it was like 550-some animals he sent to Esau as a gift, but now what does he do? He bows seven times as he approaches Esau, and he calls him Lord. What's, what's Jacob doing here? What is he enacting? What's he doing? This is not just some formal requirement from an ancient culture. He's kind of in some ways giving back the blessing he stole. Restitution. He's publicly recognizing the wrong that he has done to this man. Do you remember, the blessing was his to begin with. Do you remember that? God had said the older will serve the younger. But then Jacob did all that finagling and, 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 and scheming to try to bring it about himself. And in the process, blew up his family. He reverses this blessing where it once would have been said that he would be Lord over his brothers. Now he calls Esau. Did you catch it in the story? He calls Esau Lord. He's doing his best to bring about reconciliation, restitution, uh, peace, our theme today. And it's only because of his relationship to God has changed to one of, uh, uh, of recognition of God's grace in his life 
that his relationships to his things and his possessions and his family has changed. The one produces the other. He's oriented around God, and so it's now playing out, now that he's got the vertical orientation towards God in his horizontal relationships, as it will in ours, it's being impacted and he's changing. And because he's been reconciled to God through grace, he can't imagine keeping his grudge between his brother. Jesus so clearly taught on this in Matthew 6 when he said, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying there, you earn your your own forgiveness by forgiving others, because we know that's not the gospel. But he must be saying that a forgiven person is a forgiving person. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you've been reconciled to God, you are a minister of reconciliation, as Paul writes. A forgiven person forgives. And so what is Jacob now able to do now that he's been reoriented in these interactions with God as his life has been centered around God? He's now able to lean into conflict. He's now able to get out front of the conflict as he did in the procession of people. Walk towards the battle rather than run from it. Do you see this? This is a changed man. Because isn't that so many times our response? There's a little bit of conflict. You know what phone calls I leave the last to do? (laughs) The ones I know are going to probably be the hardest. Do you do that? You know you got to talk to somebody. You got to send an email. You got to talk about something. I mean, I'm I'm notorious for pushing that thing off. (laughs) I'm alone? Am I alone in that? I mean, no, I'm not getting much response today. I kind of see blank faces out there. Okay, it's probably the masses. No, I know I'm not alone in that. That's our response. You know why? We, we see conflict as always bad. Do you know it's not? Conflict is actually especially if you trusted Jesus and believe the gospel, conflict is actually an opportunity. It's not always bad. It's an opportunity to work through real issues, and it's an opportunity to let the gospel do its work. It actually can be a really good thing. Number one, Destroyer of relation, not just marriages, but relationships and friendships. Do you know what it is? The inability to actually have conflict. The inability to uh, actually talk about real things. The, the couple that says, you know what? Oh, we never have any conflict ever. We never have. Those are the couples that don't make it. So what's our tendency? Sometimes in church life, I think it's, it's rather than be peacemakers, we kind of be, can become peace fakers. And what we end up doing is we absolutize, if that's a word, make absolute, proverbs like these two. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's a glory to overlook an offense. Here's another one, really good proverb. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the flood, you know, the quarrel before the flood breaks out. Now, sometimes, of course, in your life, quarrels, 
a spouse, or a friend, or inside the church, sometimes the best way to resolve conflict is just to, to drop it, to overlook it as these Proverbs say. And when what you do is you extend forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, when maybe it's not even sought by the other person, and, and you're dealing gently with that person. Because you know what? It's not bothering me. I can, I can just let this one go. But... If the conflict has caused a division in a relationship, or you find yourself on a Sunday morning kind of staying to the other side of the gathering place from a certain person, or you feel that in any relationship, you know, it's just better if I just kind of drop this relationship or leave this church, or if you feel different about a person, or you just can't stop thinking about it, Overlooking it is not an option. It's not an option because clearly you're not overlooking it. You're actually not overlooking it and it will come back later. Remember, we've said this phrase many times. Have the hard conversation now so you don't have to have the much harder conversation which inevitably will come later. And, and filing it away to be used later on against the person, that's definitely not overlooking, is it? But we do that sometimes. Jacob could not afford to not reconcile. He had to. He'd been reconciled to his maker, to his God, in such a grace, gracious and merciful and mighty way. He had to. And so what did he do? He initiated. He got out front. Why? Again, because only a God-centered life produces fruit in our relationships with stuff with, and with others. God had become central to his life, central to his existence, and, and all the stuff he'd acquired along the way on this journey. It was all a grace of God. As Jacob says to Esau, look, 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 God has graciously given me this family. Look at verse 11 with me. Please accept my blessing, he said to Esau. That's brought to you because, why? Here's his God-centeredness. Because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. The blessing Jacob now realizes in all his life, in every single area of his life, had not come from anything he had done. His scheming, his plans, his finagling, his heel grabbing. No, it was all of God's grace. Everything he had was of God's grace. The stuff even in his life, the material possessions, the things he had, they were not an end in of themselves, but a means to serve God. So what did he do? He gave. He gave of himself in possessions. He gave of himself by bowing down in front of his brother and the humility that would take for a truly proud man. To the depth that God has become central in your life, your stuff, your relationships, they're not meant to be exploited by you, but meant to serve God. If it's all a gift from him anyways, your finances, your cars, your house, your reputation, your pride, your family, your health, they're not ours by right. We weren't deserved or owed anything. They're not ours by some right, but gifts, as Jacob says here. This is all 
from gracious God, he said to Esau. They're all gifts. And that means they're means to serve the God who gave them, but it also means, which this is where it gets really down and dirty and to the road, it also means he can take them back. And that's the hard thing. The God who gave them also has the right to take them away. And we've seen it with Jacob, hasn't it? haven't we? Sometimes he does take them away so that we will see that all we really need is him. And my confession to you is, I'm having trouble myself believing the things I'm even preaching to you right now. Not, not, not the divinity of Christ or Christmas or salvation by grace alone or faith alone, none of that. But I'm struggling in my own life thinking, God, why are you taking some things from me? You say you're good. Could there be a good reason behind this? I am struggling with that right now as your pastor. I'm on that, you know, we mentioned it last week, believe but help my unbelief kind of kick. Because it's showing up in Jacob's life over and over and over again. And I know it's shown up in your life over and over and over again where something good is taken out of your hands. And you're tempted to say, God is not good. Or if he's good, Sure can't be all powerful because look what happened. God does sometimes take things away so that we will see that all we really need is him. And this is the perspective that we need. So if that's the case, then when you come to conflict, the question you should be asking yourself, if God's the giver of all good gifts, and this is one to think about, one to write down, when you come to any relational conflict, here's the question. How can you please and honor God in this situation? That is the question. Write it down, think about it, hold on to it. Because I'm not sure, well, I know for me, it's not the question that's in the foreground when I'm facing conflict. It's how can I win? <laughs> how can I be made seen to be right? How can I make the other person feel bad enough to manipulate an apology out of them? Maybe those are some things I like to think about. You know, many times in conflict, we are focused on the, 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 the I or the you. When we're focused on the I, it's kind of like we defend ourselves. We become our greatest, we become a, a defense trial lawyer for ourselves. Or when we're focused on the you, what do we do? We attack, yeah, but you did this. When we are centered on God, you know what, where our focus is? It's on us. Not just I, not just me not just you. It's, it, it, it's an us attitude. That's how we approach conflict. You know, it would look like I'm aware of how I have contributed to this. And I'm aware most of God's interest and reputation in this. So let's, 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 let's deal with this honestly. Not I, not you. It's us. That's a God-centered approach to conflict. To Jacob, a right relationship with his brother in this situation had become more important than the things because his relationship with God had been put right, had been made right. And so he repents and he seeks forgiveness and, and restitution and he makes things right. But isn't that the hardest part? Think about your own conflict. It's the hardest part. But this is where the power of the gospel will do its greatest work. When the Holy Spirit works, 
Here's our second subpoint: repentance and restitution. How do they come? They come from gospel humility. Gospel humility. We all know how hard it is to say, I'm sorry. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to say, I'm sorry. But how about to tag on to that, please forgive me? <laughs> Those are like two sides of a coin that we never want to see the flip side. Okay, I can say I'm sorry, but please forgive me? Many times we'll say the I am sorry, but to, to ask that question, will you please forgive me, that's hard. You know who has trouble saying please forgive me? Proud people. Proud people. Because biblical repentance, it means, means so much more than just saying sorry. Biblical repentance, what we see here with Jacob doing with Esau, it challenges our pride. That's why it's so hard for me. That's why it's so hard for you. It causes us to humble ourselves and, and say our name. Yes, I am Jacob. I am the heel grabber. That's me. That's who I am. It causes us to humble ourselves and, and, and admit our sin and, and look actually at the consequences when you stare the other person in the face because usually they're the ones that have felt the brunt of it. It costs us something. Biblical repentance and restitution, peacemaking costs us something, doesn't it? And not only that, but restitution to make things right? Make things right? Our pride gets so much in the way of this. Our pride even gets in the way of how we apologize. We're the craftiest of apologizers, aren't we? Take a look on the screen coming up at some non-apologies or faux apologies, and I've never used any of these, so just a... a, a uh, I don't know about you, I haven't, but um, I'm sorry, but I'll uh, fill in the blank. I'm sorry, but I was, I was so tired. I was so tired. I'm sorry. I was just so hungry. I just was angry. You know, I wanted to get to the restaurant, you know, but, you know, no, you did this, not the but. I did this. So here's another one. I'm sorry if I made you feel hurt. Or I'm sorry if I made you feel uh, uh, offended, the third one there. I'm sorry if I uh, offended you. What are you apologizing for? Their feelings, not your actions. <laughs> right? Do you see these here? Hey, here's another one. I'm sorry, but this, just, this isn't the real me. Who is it then? <laughs> are you in disguise? What's that? Yeah, who just yelled at me? I, th I thought I was looking at you, but... Or, I just don't know where that came from. Well, the Bible does. Jesus said it was your heart. So I'm going to help you find that space where that came from. Or, here's one. You even said it. Please forgive me. Do you forgive me? Why aren't you forgiving me? Did you forgive me? Why, did you forgive me yet? Why aren't you forgiving me? And that's not very gracious. Repentance and restitution, the true kind, they come from gospel humility. Not faux apologies, fake apologies. True humility is needed. Sorry about the mic. We're going to get that fixed for next week. True humility is needed for true repentance and restoration. And, and this is what the power of living in the gospel does. It's a long quote, but I love this one by Andy Allen. Take a look with me. He talks about Peter. Oh, you can see that. Peter was often in need of forgiveness. 
He knew better than most that a believer's journey to Christ involves admitting our failure to meet God's holy standard. There's the humility. There's the God orientation. Not obsessively perfecting our image. We humans, though, naturally tend toward legalism, justifying ourselves before God and others by proving we're good enough. The gospel offers us a marvelously better way. I love how that's said. We experience joy through grace and mercy. So much so that Paul has to admonish the Roman church not to continue in sin so that grace may abound. But sadly, what happens in the church often stays in the church, meaning our forgiving. In our everyday lives, we aren't vocal about our frequent need of forgiveness, saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thus keeping hidden one of the most hopeful aspects of the gospel. Humbly acknowledging our brokenness, we reveal that our confidence rests not in perfection, but in God's grace. In other words, in the face of conflict, we get out front and we hold to the freedom and humility that the gospel brings. That's how it happens. Repentance and restitution comes from gospel humility. Peter knew that. What does that mean? You trust that you're truly forgiven in Jesus and you confess your sins because you know they're forgiven vertically. Horizontally, you can say it. You're totally secure vertically, so what could ever happen horizontally when you admit or ask forgiveness or bow seven times on the way to your brother? Nothing can threaten this. So we do that, and we hold on to that, and we trust that he's using this moment of conflict to grow you and the other person. See, conflict isn't always bad if we go about it with an us attitude, a gospel attitude. He can grow us. We can actually admit real hurts and have real healing rather than maybe fake peace. We can have real peace. What's another way? We trust that he's watching over you in the situation as you step out in front of the family as Jacob did, whatever that would look like metaphorically for you. And you trust that he's watching over the situation and you cast your fears on God, fears of the other person, which we have, don't we? Fears of what the other person might do. And in humility, we give room for God to act and the gospel to work. I was a pastor, a young pastor, at Evangelical Free Church in Laguna Hills. And I'd been there as a young pastor, intern, became hired full-time. I was such, thought I was such a big shot, up-and-coming guy in ministry at this church. Lots of recognition, lots of successes. Well, all of a sudden, they hired this new hotshot youth pastor. I was so thrilled. No, we, uh, we had a friendship. We worked together in youth ministry. But over a few years of working with him, I began to realize that we needed some reconciliation. He hadn't even done anything. I was just harboring uh, jealousy, envy. Because he had gifts and skills and talents that I didn't have. When what should I have been doing? We're on the same team celebrating those gifts and talents because they're all going to get put to the same good use. But I didn't have that. My temptation, and it was, and I gave into that for a few years, was don't say anything. Yeah, you're overlooking it. You're being really godly, Jeff. You're, una- you're just able to like really overlook this sin, even though I was thinking about it every day, Right? <laughs> What I'm saying is that it, it, it wasn't overlooked. It was still there and it was nagging. And so one day I decided, okay, I'm gonna, Lord, I prayed. I'm, I'm going to step out in front of the family 
and be the first one in, in the line. And I went to him and I just said, you know what, Jared, I have to just tell you, I've been harboring like just bitter feelings towards you. And I don't have any reason to. I find myself like, you know, the things you're good at, I'm not good at. And I just am getting, I feel a distance now, and it's, it's, it's made me distance from you. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, yeah, I've been having the same feelings with you. <laughs> Do you see? If I hadn't gone, the opportunity for, the God to do, for God to do his work and the gospel to do its work would never have happened. But what happened in that moment was res- reconciliation, was restitution. We both were able to look at each other and say, you know what? I've been dealing with the same thing. And we prayed together and we hugged. And our ministry going forward was so much sweeter. And I'm still friends with him today as he's now a lead pastor at a church in, in California. I don't know if we would be if we hadn't had that conversation Jacob's probably afraid. Jacob probably has, well, you know, we know he's afraid. He prayed, I'm, af- I'm afraid they're going to kill me. He's going to kill me and my family. But look how Esau responds. Do you think that's what Jacob expected? He runs to Jacob. He hugs him. He kisses him. As Jacob calls him Lord, Esau comes to him as brother. Jacob's like, Lord, Lord, Lord. Esau's like, brother, brother, brother. And he hugs him. Where there used to be strife and wrestling was now genuine forgiveness. God had answered his prayer. Here it is, Genesis 32. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau. I fear him. He may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Does this sound like anything else to you? Prodigal son, Luke 15. Prodigal son, Jacob, has been welcomed home. Jesus was probably thinking of this story when he shared the, the parable. That's how we use the gospel on ourselves. You know, usually you can trace the source of the conflict you're having here in relationships back to an improper view of God. Uh, He won't come through. Yeah, maybe he's not stepping out in front of me in this conflict. Uh, Maybe they're going to respond poorly, and they might. But isn't God still there with you? It's usually a problem with how you're looking at him or yourself. So are you seeing him clearly? this Advent season? Or is your life oriented around God? Jacob had, in fact, he he said to Esau here, seeing your face is like seeing God. He connected the two events of wrestling with the angel and seeing the face of God and seeing the face of Esau because he knew one was not possible without the other. You must be oriented around God vertically if horizontally we want peace. Peace first has to come here. Reconciliation with God was meant, uh, meant a necessary reconciliation with his brother. The reconciliation he had with God meant it was necessary here to reconcile. I want to speak just for a moment to someone, more than one, maybe a few in here, who have been considering reconciling with someone. You've been thinking about it, you know it's needed, and you're maybe on the doorstep, afraid to kind of step out and be in front of the process to lean in, to initiate, I want to encourage you, trust the Lord and act. Trust the Lord and pursue it. It's worth it. The gospel is powerful, and Jesus' reputation is worth it. Pursue reconciliation. Maybe it's a 20-year break you need to start praying about. Maybe it was just a fight from last weekend with your spouse. And you know what? Maybe none of your fears will come true. They might not. 
we tend to think we catastrophize, don't we? Well, that's going to happen, and he's going to say that, and then he's going to do that, and the whole thing's going to blow up, and it'll never been worth it. That's, the enemy loves to push us there. Guess what? Maybe you'll be surprised. Don't you think Jacob was surprised? He's running at me. He's like, does he have a spear in his hand? <laughs> you know? No, he's running to hug you, Jacob. Well, even though there's restoration, we're going to finish these next two quick. Even though there's restoration with these brothers, it doesn't mean they're going to be next-door neighbors. <laughs> Partial obedience, let's look at it, is never obedience at all. From restitution to obedience, sorry we're going over today. We got communion coming too. Let's see how Jacob still needs to grow. He still struggles here. Esau essentially says, hey, hey, let's go get plots of land next to each other. That's a good idea, Jacob. We haven't been around each other for a while. But look at verse 12. He says, Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob knows he can't do that, actually. He has to live in the promised land. And um, Esau, I think, was in Edom to the south. His calling and obedience is back to the promised land. You remember? That's what his obedience looks like. But rather than just come out and be honest with Esau, what does he do there? Hey, Esau, we're, we're all so tired from our journey. You go on ahead and we'll follow you. Do you see this here? And the very next morning, what does Jacob do? He heads west instead of following his brother south. And aren't we such a mixture, too, of conflicting actions? Same time, justified and sinner. On the one hand, he's just seen this miraculous reconciliation and he immediately slips back into lying and deceiving. We are like Jacob. He is like us. And then he's meant to go to Bethel where he had the first vision on the way out of the promised land where he first saw the angel staircase dream. He's supposed to go back to the place that he called the gate of heaven, that he called the house of God. But what does he do? Instead, he goes to this town uh, Sukkoth, and he builds a permanent structure there for his livestock. It's only four miles west from where the reconciliation happens. He doesn't go all the way home. And then it says he goes on to Shechem, which is just 20 more miles west. Yeah, he's in the promised land, but not in the place God wanted him. It's still as if he's pursuing his own interests. So not just once, but twice in these few little verses there. They're not just a throwaway, these verses at the end. Twice in these verses, he disobeys God, and he has not gone all the way home. Why did he do this? Maybe in his mind he thought, you know, well, this is a better travel route for my livestock to sell and make money, or, or this land looks better, maybe he thought, or maybe he thought, you know, I'm just going to be about 25 miles from Bethel. I can pop over there whenever God needs me. Here's what we're meant to see. Partial obedience is never obedience at all. And Jacob is only halfway home. That's what we're meant to see. He begins to build his own kingdom rather than get on with the program of building God's house and kingdom. Do you know so much of our relational strife and conflict is because we only go halfway in obedience? Well, at least I didn't lash out at her, right? Halfway. At least I didn't lash out. And we're going to see next time that his disobedience right here is so costly to his family. It's such a tragic passage and horrific, I did not want to talk about it in one of our Advent weeks. So we're going to finish it up in 2022. There's an ominous mention of it, though, in verse 19. Take a look. 
And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he'd pitched his tent. It's just this ominous throw in at the end. You can look up to your chapter 34 at the top for a heading just to get a little idea. His disobedience is going to be severely costly. You're going to learn the hard way, Jacob. Why is obedience so hard for us? Why do we leave conflict and walk away from responsibilities or only go halfway to home? Why do we only go halfway home when full obedience is required by God? Ian Duguid said, in the same ballpark is okay for watching a baseball game, but not with obedience for God. So what do we need? Do we just need to be told that full obedience is required, so get to it? No, here's what we need. We need to be reminded again that from start to finish, from Jacob's blessing in the womb to the forgiveness of his failures to his obedience to God was all of grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unsought for grace. It's our final point. What do we do? We need to see that the grace of salvation and the cross is the only thing that will bring us fully home. It will bring you home. I kind of wish I would have made this point Um, seeing and savoring the full obedience of Jesus will bring us fully home. But it was already printed, so it's too late. But that's really what we're talking about here. Jesus' obedience, unlike Jacob's, was full and perfect. Perfect for you. He had no need to repent, to seek restoration. His obedience was full Jesus took his obedience all the way to the cross so guilty prodigals could come home like Jacob, all the way home to him. And that we too then, because of that, would see the face of God. Because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, we can have access to God, the face of God even, And then when we really grasp and really believe that, that everything in our life, all of grace is from him start to finish, and Jesus' full obedience fills it up for us, there'll begin to be more Israel in us and less Jacob, less I in you and more us. And that restoration and reconciliation with God will send us out into the world to be ministers of reconciliation with all people because that's what Advent's about. Emmanuel, God with us, that was the reconciliation plan. As Matthew wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's what the table's about. That's what the Lord's Supper's about that reconciliation could only come because Christ became a human and in full obedience paved the way for us to just like lay down our weapons and pursue restoration with others. That's what this table is about. That's what the elements are about. So as the worship band comes back to get ready and we get ready to take, whether you're at home watching or here in this room, What does restitution and reconciliation look like for you in your life? Maybe it's coming to him the first time. Maybe it's going out in reconciliation with others. Would you take a moment to ask him in prayer?